Welcome to Who Wrote That Up For You, a daily podcast that shines a light on the American justice system and its role in empowering the powerful to take from you. The justice system is the only branch of your government where an individual, rather than the collective, can make the system act for you. It puts power in the individual's hands, but it's broken and being used against you at a time when you need it most. And welcome to Who Wrote That Up For You. I'm Sonia Ebron, uh, co-founder at Courtroom 5. And I'm Deborah Sloan, the other co-founder at Courtroom 5. We've got a wonderful, uh, exciting lineup of guests for you today. In a few moments, we will speak with Jazz Hampton. Uh, Jazz is the CEO at Turn Signal, uh, one of the most progressive traffic signal, traffic stop apps uh, in, uh, in the country here. And so we'll talk with him about some of the progress that they have made. Little further in the show, we will speak with Catherine Alternator at the Self-Represented Litigation Network. Uh, I've been uh, very happy to uh, to work with Catherine on that network for some time. So we'll hear about some of the uh, efforts and progress that they are uh, working on there uh, as well. Before we get started, though, Deborah, what's on your mind today? I want to talk about this case down in uh, uh, South Carolina of a uh, a set of uh, identical twins who were um, accused of cheating on a medical exam. If you're going to court on a, a defamation case or um, uh, by saying somebody defamed you, there's a certain number of things that you have to prove. And so these two identical twins, they were they were supposedly caught um with this the identical answers <laughs> on the on, on some of the questions on many of the questions identical uh incorrect answers and identical correct answers on many of the questions the uh, mon- the people that were watching them decided that they were cheating and uh so they basically it got to the the local media and there was just this big thing that these two girls were, were cheating and they, the university basically kicked them out and um, they got some really bad reputation. And it turns out that uh, a jury awarded them $1.5 million because basically the, the um, medical school could not prove that, um, I, I mean, basically they proved that the medical, um, that the medical school did not have all, basically all the elements of defamation. And and, and again, you, you have to have, if you're going to court, you have to have all the elements of the, um, the uh, what you're going to, of your claim, what you're going to accuse someone of. And the element they didn't have was that they couldn't prove that, that they were cheating just uh, based on just that. There's one part that says you have to, it has to be a lie. And basically the girls are saying, well, um, it, 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 it's a lie. We didn't do it. And uh, so they won. And I, I, I like that because it was it was it was a textbook. They don't have the elements. So basically, you know, the uh, the, the girls won. But it was it was a very uh, interesting case. But it kind of highlights what really what a jury has to look at in order to prove a particular case. 
Elements are everything. That's uh, that's true. Elements and evidence, anyway. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, elements are very important. We'll appreciate you um, uh, bringing that up. Uh, as you all know, uh, at Courtroom 5, we believe the courts belong to the people, in particular to the people who use them. And we, the people, are coming to claim our courts. And so if you are in court without a lawyer or you need to sue someone and can't find a lawyer to represent you, Get yourself over to courtroom5.com, try a limited version of our services for free, and we hope to provide some relief for you there. At this time, it's my pleasure to welcome onto the show Jazz Hampton, the CEO, uh, very famous now, CEO at Turn Signal. <laughs> Jazz, I see you in the press getting this award and that award. I think you were in Dubai or somebody in, on your team the other day. I mean, it's <laughs> just shaking up the world uh, with, with Turn Signal. So welcome. Thank you for taking time to join us here on Who Wrote That Up For You. Uh, not only am I a fan of this of this program, but a fan of Courtroom Five. So thank you all for having me. And I think you know I, I was on a list or two, but you were on each one of those. I think so. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be in good company. Happy to be in good company. Fantastic, fantastic. So tell us about Turn Signal and what got you involved in it. Yeah, so Turn Signal is uh, is a app that anyone could have on their phone, uh, and with the press of a button, when you're driving, you can be connected. 24 7 365 to an attorney on a video conference just like we're having uh instantaneously when you're pulled over or when you're in an accident our mission and goal is simple and it's three-pronged is to protect driver's rights to de-escalate these roadside interactions and third and most importantly to ensure that everyone gets home safely uh i'm from i, I have co-founders just like you all uh, my two co-founders are also two black men andre and mike uh and we are all born and raised here in the state of minnesota so we know tragedy all too well from traffic stops. Uh, in fact, Andre and Michael, who've been best friends since they were, before they could walk, since they were three years old, they grew up you know, in St. Paul. They knew the Castile family uh, when Philando tragically lost his life. That hit home in a real way. Um, and then you know, in 2020, George Floyd happened. And I was, you know, my background is uh, I have a computer science degree. And then I went straight into law school. Uh, when I was in law school, I was a public defender. Uh, after that, I went and worked at a national corporate you know, law firm defending large companies when they were being sued. Uh, and after George Floyd, I was on so many panels, so many DEI conferences, so many uh, panels about what we should do in justice. And to be honest with you, what I started feeling personally was I'm not doing anything, especially as a black male that's a, a, a lawyer in this state. I'm not doing anything to really be a part of the solution on the ground level. Uh, and at that time, Mike and Dre called me and they said, Jazz, we should we should leave. We're thinking about doing this. What do you think about having a lawyer on the phone? And I, I was also teaching a class at one of our local law schools at the time. And I jumped into professor mode and I, I rattled off all the legal considerations that need to be thought of, uh, attorney-client privilege, to, to your right to record during these interactions and, and your, your First Amendment rights. And, and at the end of that long speech, they're like, Jazz, you have to quit your job and join us to do it. Uh, and so with the permission of my wife, uh, I did just that, and uh, she she said I could do it. So I I, uh, I stepped down from my role as a professor and from my litigation role at my law firm about a year and a half shy of making partner uh, to start Turn Signal with Dre and Mike. Extraordinary! That's fantastic, and you know it is. Uh, the lived experience, I think, that makes some of these justice tech uh, applications so powerful. The empathy that we have with the folks we're trying to serve. Uh, so I, I really appreciate you stepping down from your job, thanks to your wife for allowing you to do it, you know, to, to, to get to work on this. That's fantastic. She, she actually she actually said, she's like, 
you're on my insurance anyways. Go ahead. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what's credit, up. That's what's up. My wife. Yeah. Tell us about some of the uh, recent applaudits that you all have uh, received. You, you're in several states now. You're moving very fast. And I know, I've just, like I said, I've seen you uh, in the press a lot uh, and getting lots of awards. What's happening there at Turn Signal? Yeah, you know, we're, we appreciate uh, awards. And, and of course, it, it does feel on a certain level of validation of what we're doing. But what we appreciate more than that is the feedback we get from people who are being pulled over, pressing that button, and have an attorney on the line. That's what gives us the most joy. I can't tell you how many emails, uh, surveys that we get back saying, hey, I, we had a woman in Brooklyn Center, the city where, where um, uh, Dante Wright was one of the more tragic losses we had recently right here in Minnesota a woman who, who was pulled over and she said, you know, I, I, the attorney was there and they helped guide me. But more than anything, I'm a black woman on my way to pick up my kids from school at 3.30 in the afternoon. And I just wanted someone there with me in my vehicle. And not only someone, but someone who has knowledge of the law, like that story of her telling us that, that meant more to me than winning the ABA tech show start of the year, right? Don't get me wrong. I loved that award and we appreciated winning that. But that story is so much more. And we hear those day in and day out. And that's what means a lot to me. And we, when we started Turn Signal, we launched only in Minnesota because when someone answers these calls, it's someone who practices law in the state that you're driving, right? It's not a, a, a someone in Dubai that practices law in Florida answering a Minnesota call. It's someone who practices law in that state. Uh, and so we roll out on a state-by-state basis. And today we're in 20 states. We just launched in, in New York, New Jersey this week. Uh, and by, you know, the April 1st, we'll be in all 50 states in America. Wow. Awesome. So we are we are thrilled about that progress, and it's been it's been so much fun to to see more and more people have access to the platform. That is extraordinary. You know, we're we're also I mentioned the uh, Justice Tech. Uh, we're really excited to have you represented by Damian uh, Wilson, your marketing head in uh, in the Justice Tech Association too. You all are just an example of the 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 speed at which we want to develop uh, and and distribute these solutions. So just big ups uh, on that. Really, really proud and happy uh, about your progress there. Yeah, and and when it comes to organizations like Justice Tech. I didn't know about them, honestly, before I left my job and entered this space. And there, people don't know, there's a robust system that is here to support legal tech companies. And there's so many good legal tech opportunities that are still there. And so many companies like Courtroom 5 doing great work in this space already. Uh, it, it feels great to be in a room with more people doing just that work and a lot of them doing it for reasons of, of access to justice, which is incredibly important as well. So I, I, I love it. That's fantastic. So last question then, uh, what's what's your vision? What's the end goal for Turn Signal? What do you, you know, how do you see it changing the world? What's going to be different uh, when this is in everyone's hands? Yeah, you know, I've been pulled over 12 times in my life uh, and I've never received, I've never received a ticket. Um, a handful of those times have been since I've become a lawyer. And what I always say is uh, I have a privilege uh, that I know the law, I know how to communicate the law in a calm and de-escalated manner, uh, and I know how to navigate those situations better than someone who doesn't have my educational background. What I love and what I see for Turn Signal is the ubiquity of giving everyone the same feeling that I have in that moment, right? Uh, when that attorney is on the phone with you, you know that someone is there that's going to help guide you through that moment in the same way that you can communicate that as the way that I can as a lawyer, as a, as a law professor, or anything else. 
Uh, that's the goal is ubiquity. I want everyone who's driving to have this in the same way, you know, today's my five-year anniversary with my wife and I, and we're going to go out to dinner and we're going to Uber home. And just like I think of, I'm going to go to this restaurant and Uber <laughs> home. I want people to think, oh, when I was pulled over, I used terms. I want it to click in your mind just like Uber does or Lyft does when you think about getting home, right? Uh, I want that to be the case for everyone who's out there driving. Um, and that's also why we make turn signal available to everyone at no cost to them if they can't afford it. If you make under $40,000, you never have to pay for turn signal. In fact, you get the same product that Elon Musk or Bill Gates or or the president of the United States gets. You get the exact same product and we do not charge you for it because we don't believe in that. We want everyone to have that safety. And that's why it's really important as we're rolling to all these 50 states. Excellent. Ubiquity. That's what it's all about. That's fantastic. So, Jazz, I'm going to share uh, TurnSignal's website on the screen for our viewers here. Uh, TurnSignal.com without the A. I think that's uh, brilliant. I appreciate that. Where else can people find you online? Uh, So you can find me on LinkedIn. So I'm just Jazz Hampton, J-A-Z-Z Hampton. Uh, you find me on LinkedIn. That's one of my my more active social medias. And then turn signal at turn signal on, on all platforms from TikTok to Instagram and beyond so, and Twitter. So find us there. And then uh, any on for myself personally, I'm Jazz Hampton ESQ on on all other platforms. So please find me. I love engaging with folks. I love talking legal tech. Um, and you're right. We don't have the A in turn signal because there's a lack of access to justice. So until there you, you have access to justice, we won't have the A in our name. So I, I love it. That. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right, Chaz Hampton, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have you back. Thank you all for having me. Good to talk. Deborah, uh, what do we have? All right. So yesterday's or the previous day's question quiz was question was true or false. The trial stage is the longest part of litigation. And the attorney who was on at the time, he thought that was a great question. So he answered it. in text. Uh, It's false. That is false. Typically, the longest part of litigation is the discovery stage, which could go on for years. A trial typically, what, two, three weeks, maybe a month at most, if it's a civil trial. But the discovery stage can go for a long time. Okay, so today's quiz then. Tory was sued by Big Bad Bank for failing to pay a credit card debt. Tori responded to the complaint with a motion to dismiss. She won. The case was dismissed without prejudice. Should Tori assume the case is over? All right. So get ready to answer that question. At this time, it is my great pleasure to welcome onto the show Catherine Alternator at the Self-Represented Litigation Network. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. And thank you for the work uh, you do at the Self-Represented Litigation Network. I've been happy to partner in some small respect with you uh, in some of that work over the last few years. Catherine, before uh, we get into the meat of it, give us your background and just how you got involved in the Self-Represented Litigation Network. Yeah, absolutely. And first, um, thank you so much for having me on. And congratulations for the amazing progress um, that you have made and the contribution your company makes, but also the leadership that you give our community. Um, our community being the Access to Justice folks. Um, It's a really exciting time to be alive in Access to Justice. And you all are really uh, standing at the top of the class, um, showing us the way. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Yeah, so I spent about 20 years in Alaska. I was a legal aid lawyer. And then in 2001, I was hired by the Alaska court system to start a self-help center. And their plan was to have kiosks 
in the lobby. And I said, no. Um, Alaska, if it had time zones, would have four. It is very big. And um, like many states that have large uh, rural areas, resources tend to go towards um, the urban area and the, res- the rural areas are excluded. In Alaska, this is particularly um, a, a critical issue because much of the urban issue are indigenous communities who have lived there for tens of thousands of years and we should be serving them first, right? So what we did back in 2001 went all phone and internet. So I've been remote for two decades. So I'm... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it took a, a pandemic um, to get everything else on board, but I guess that was that. Um, and we went all phone and internet and provided comprehensive self-help services that included forms and instructions, but also coaching for trial preparation. Um, we focused on uh, contested cases, uh, and we also then using the phone and the internet and then connecting with local community partners that could be on the ground to help people. Um, we spent about a year talking to people on the phone, figuring out what they needed, what they wanted, and the kinds of language and terms and all of that. It was real focus on plain language, wrote hundreds of court forms, um, and it was it was a blast. However, I was all you know, I myself and uh, one of the law librarians at the time, Jessica Van Buren, um, were the only two people in those first couple of years that were working on these issues in Alaska. And I became part of a small group of professionals around the rest of the country um, in California, Maryland, Minnesota, New York, being some of the key places that were also starting self-help centers and courts at that time. And that there was something called the Self-Represented Litigation Network that was a project within um, the Conference of Chief Justices and Richard Zorza, uh, John Grecian, Bonnie Huff, Glenn Rodden from LSC, Lori Zilon, who's a retired justice of the California Supreme Court or uh, Appellate Court, um, were some of the original leaders and really visionaries that, that we bring access to justice folks together and think about how to change how courts provide services. Now, in, in the 1970s, there was an article that uh, was the first one documenting about two and a half or something percent of the people were self-represented. Now, um, in state courts, depending on case type and location, it's between 65 and 100 percent mm. of folks are self-represented. So we have this expert user system that um, lay people were in. So what do we do? Um, in 2014... Uh, the Public Welfare Foundation came in and gave us some funding, so we were able to spin out of the National Center and open it up beyond just this sort of early group that was associated with the National Center and open it up to the community, because by 2014, we had enough momentum around the country. Self-help was happening in lots of places. The, the courts understood they needed to change how they were doing business. Um, and so now we are a network of justice system professionals with about 2,000 members all over the country. Um, we track about 30 different constituencies. We try to bring in people from the courts, legal aid, the bar, technologists like yourself. Um, and, and as you know, um, Sonia, you're a superstar of co-chairing one of our working groups, the Justice Tech Entrepreneurs Working Group. Um, we also have working groups uh, for law librarians on research, forms and technology, navigators, really whatever sort of the moving things going on um, and and we learn about best practices, what's happening around the country, and then that helps us sort of identify where, um, you know, to put it in the Wayne Gretzky speak, right? Where the open ice is, you know, like where opportunities are, and and that we can we can get there and support people as they come into the field, but also as they grow. 
So um, it's a it's a lot of fun. Uh, I meet inspiring people every single day, uh, but often it is only you know one or two people in a jurisdiction that's working on something. So having a national network is is critical so people get professional um, support and collaboration. I have to say, and you're you know I have learned so much um, uh, from working with the organization and just understanding. As a non-lawyer, the broad, just the breadth of work that's going on on access to justice and making sure or trying to to ensure that self-represented litigants get some services uh, and have some empathy um, from from more experienced people in the system. So really, thank you uh, for this work and for this network. It's been extraordinary uh, just learning about all that is going on there. I have seen it as I've seen, you know, I'm on the list and so I see all of the information being passed and folks just asking for questions and getting huge responses and things just moving along um, in, in, as a result of having access to this network. Is that the purpose of it or are there, you know, some other uh, goals for yeah. SRLN? Yeah, pr- primarily it really has evolved into a community of practice for justice system professionals to connect, to learn, to share um, that is it, its primary goal. But then beyond that, for policymakers, it really does give them a chance to see where movement is happening. You know, we're in the process of trying to build uh, a reform movement. And so you've got to figure out, uh, you know, where, where your opportunities lie. And so we, we do also, um, we're able to use the information we learn from our members and participants to, to do an analysis and gain insights about the maturity of the field, where opportunities are. We have a lot of funders um, that participate. Um, we also do, um, our, our organization itself does a lot of geospatial analysis. All justice is local. So, um, you know, we, we like to, we have a mapping division uh, that, that does maps for, for private clients uh, throughout the sector. But we also use that to do our own internal analytics of where are the opportunities. And then, you know, my job is just to to meet people like you all and put you with other folks and just make connections where there's a a spark and and let people run. Um, And I also think the development of leadership, you know, we have a big generational uh, changeover, you know, the folks coming into the, the sector. I mean, we want to give them opportunity. We want to support them. Um, and really empower them to be leaders, right? Because that's what this reform movement needs. And every individual is a leader in their community on this. Extraordinary. That's fantastic. So let me ask then, I want to ask rather how courts can uh, build trust and confidence with the public. I want to ask that, but I think it's important to preface it by asking why. Let's do the why first, right? Why is it important that, that, the public have trust and confidence in the courts? Yeah, well, so just any of our government institutions. And in, in fact, right now, we can, we can um, refer to the National Center for State Courts does an annual public opinion survey. And they look at the public's view of government institutions generally. And, you know, of course, we know across the country that that, that is eroding. Um, in the 2022 survey, um, the percentage of people saying that they had either a great deal of confidence or some confidence in a, in a government institution um, was as follows. For state legislatures, 55% of the people. Governor, 54%. Federal courts, 57%. U.S. Supreme mm. Court, 53%. And this survey mm. was in October of 2022. So it's, it's very current. 
Um, state courts win, actually, at 60%. Um, so, uh, but this erosion in, in trust and confidence of our government institutions and the crisis of the, of the rule of law and, you know, everything that we you know, see going on in our societies, um, you know, if, if these institutions are not valid, to the to the people in our communities, um, then we we just can't do those kind of social compacts to have communities that work that are inclusive. Uh, so I actually see that this work is critical for um, the, the rule of law um, to stop the slide towards fascism. Um, I think self help is a bulwark of democracy, hands down, um, because it is one of the most critical aspects of your government responding to you in a respectful, inclusive, empathetic way when done well. So, so yeah. stealing that. That's I great. am so stealing that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That's, that's the quote yeah. of the decade there. Well, let, well then let's, let's move to the how, how can courts um, work to build that trust and confidence? What do they need to do? Well, my, my short answer is we, we need to develop accountability practices. Now, what is really interesting about this, um, what, one other thing from the survey, um, and, and this is really the time to do it. For the first time since 2012, we actually saw a crossover where the majority of respondents were saying that courts um, do not deliver justice for all. And then when we look um, further into those numbers, we, say, we see that 61% of black respondents do not believe justice for all is being delivered. 59% of Hispanic respondents and 46% of white respondents. So we see mirrored in these numbers, the crises that we are facing across this country. Um, the, in this survey, the state courts identify accountability. They have a, a question that says, um, you know, ask people about accountability practices. And they think that, that those are as follows an appeals process, um, and, and the public generally feels these are very good. So 84% of the public thinks the appeals process is good. 84% think um, trial by jury of your peers. 81% uh, code of conduct and discipline. 81% writing down opinions. 81% uh, open court or online records. So this is what the court has set out as an accountability practice. However, in the self-represented court, exactly zero of those things are happening. Um, mm. And so what the mm. institution has believed is an accountability uh, practice is not. They're not asking questions like, is the court adequately funded to provide high quality customer service? Is it easy to use safe and secure technology supporting the public in a way that meets the public's needs and helps them achieve their goals in court? Who is being excluded from services and why? Is the law mm. even being followed? We you know, are increasingly mm. seeing research where many judges are just absolutely not following the law. Yeah. Courtroom procedures and practices support lay people in giving relevant testimony and entering relevant evidence so the judge can make a decision on the merits. I mean, that's that's your meat and potatoes right there, right? <laughs> right, you know, right. Like, yeah, not um, happening, yeah. And, and so, you know, and is there a community feedback loop? So I think the things that actually would make this institution accountable to our communities are just not even on their radar. And so, you know, we can ask, like, well, what, what can we do to change that? Um, personally, I, I believe we need to, you know, the, we have to do it in a structural way to start with, um, you know, in order to have sustainability and really beginning to think about, can we create community councils similar to maybe a hospital or a school district 
where you have civic-minded individuals of the community who sit and regularly talk about what's going on in a court. Who can go, you know, are you doing the research court on all the things I just said? What is the way that we're documenting whether the law is being followed? Now with technology and uh, natural language processing, guess what? We can actually learn this stuff um, in a scalable and affordable way. But unless unless we bring our communities, and, and because court, you know, all justice is local. I mean, it has to be for that community and inclusive of everybody in that community who can say, this is what we expect from our court, and the court should be delivering it. So that's my... Uh, that's my hope. This is this is a sermon. I love it. I love it. That's fantastic, <laughs> Catherine. Thank you for that. Well, well, there, there's another part of this. Then I guess I would I would ask: How can courts work with justice tech entrepreneurs um, and justice tech applications to build that trust and confidence? Yeah. No, absolutely. So, so, so much of what I talked about, I think, um, you know, if you were talking to a lawyer or a judge from you know 50 years ago, they'd say, well, that's just all impossible to track. And that's why we have these sort of rigid measures of appeal or a record or whatever. Technology empowers us to go right in and see everything. And so the first thing I think for justice tech entrepreneurs is they are the leading educators in their community for the courts. The courts just don't have the sophistication over what is even possible. You know, like the idea that you could use um, you know, natural language processing to, to look at, you know, are we even following the law? Like, what's going on? How are the judges treating people? Are, you know, like, we can actually, you know, use computers to scan that. How we provide services. Um, you know, you all have a ethos of how you do uh, UX and UI and the constant feedback stuff, which courts, you know, they, it's a very historically rigid, just put it out there. So you're educators of not only the tools that are out there, but a methodology of how to engage the tools. Secondly, you're the vendors, right? I mean, you're the people who can build the tools for them and test. They don't have amongst their legacy um, vendors, do not, you know, aren't, aren't being all scrappy and getting in there and figuring out what the people need. They're serving the institution, not the public. Justice tech entrepreneurs are serving the public, not the institution. And that's where we see that power shift happen. Um, but we have to build those relationships um, and and those connections to the broader community, which I think also justice tech, because as you know, so many of the, the, the people that are on your podcasts and you know, certainly the individual jazz who just went, you know, we're really talking about people from a lived experience, right? So we that, that is who dominates the justice tech. So when we build connections with them, we're getting organizers, we're getting wellness folks, we're getting financial folks, educational folks, and we can really teach the court in an ethically appropriate way about its community and how it can be responsive to the community. And you guys are the key to that. <laughs> we absolutely no, no, are, are no here small, to serve. No small order there. <laughs> <laughs> it is no small order. No joke. That's some work there. That is extraordinary. Catherine, I'm going to share um, the organization's website, uh, srln.org, for Self-Represented Litigation Network, uh, on the screen there. Where else can people find you and the organization online? Um, LinkedIn and Twitter are the two places that uh, we, we remain on Twitter, uh, but absolutely LinkedIn. Um, I'm on there as an individual and as a self-represented litigation network. So, and for any justice system professional, there's a process to, to join, to sign up, and you can get on the listserv and then hear from colleagues, not just in this country, we have about 14 other countries participating, 
Um, so you get really, you know, what the current real-time best thinking is on, on uh, access to justice reform. I love it. I love it. We have a lot of uh, self-represented litigants um, tuning in. So we just want to clarify that the organization is for professionals working in the justice system, not for self-represented litigants themselves. Correct. It is for justice system professionals. We're trying to support and hold them up to do a better job in their communities. But what I think um, self-represented litigants and, 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 and the members of a community can do is ask your court who's participating in SRLN, ask your judges. If there's a judicial election and there's a judicial forum, hey, do you participate in SRLN? We have judges in here learning from other judges. Um, challenge your court, your judiciary, the staff to participate in these best practices organizations and get exposed to the innovations in the field. Fantastic. That is the best way to contribute. That's absolutely right. Catherine, thank you so much uh, for the work you've done throughout your career, but especially with SRLN. Uh, it's been a pleasure to work with you and look to continue uh, partnership. Thank you so much for joining us on Who Wrote That Up for You. Thank you. You guys take care. Bye-bye. Fantastic. Fantastic. Again, I'm just, you know, every day, uh, just really proud and happy to be able to work in this space uh, with folks who are doing such powerful work and just just having empathy, um, not only for the people affected, uh, but for the, our system as a whole. I mean, the courts, the, the institution ought to work better. And so it's just great to know uh, that there are people in entrepreneurship, in organizations like SRLN uh, dedicated to making the whole institution work better. I love this justice tech uh, focus today. It's really <laughs> fantastic. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's what we do. Absolutely. All right. all right. That's all we have for you today. Uh, and we will talk with you again soon. Thanks for joining us on who wrote that up for you. Are you feeling beleaguered? angry or afraid, as if things are spinning out of control and you're powerless to stop them, it's easy to just let things slide and hope they don't get worse. But they often do get worse. The thing is, you're not powerless. Our courts belong to us, and their purpose is to give power to the powerless. Don't let your grievances pile up without redressing them. You can handle this in court, or if someone takes you to court, you can take them to school.